Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. And now Pyongyang's Chuckleheads Comedy Club and Palace of Revolutionary Triumph welcomes North Korea's funniest comic, Ree Yong Yong. Thank you, Pyongyang. What a crowd. You're dressed so badly. I thought I was in South Korea. I'm not saying their President Park is a wuss, but he put up a wall in the DMZ because the draft was giving him chills. Speaking of president, how about that Kim Jong-un? He's the youngest son. How did he get to be chairman? I'll tell you how. He... Okay, how about this one? Um, what's the difference between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump? I'll tell you. One is a paranoid megalomaniac who's been pampered since birth, and the other is the supreme leader of North Korea. <laughs> Thank you. You're too kind. Hey, have you noticed that bulge in Kim's pants? You know what that is? It's a bunch of... Thank you, I'll be here all week. Unless I'm the object of a human rights violation, or as we call it here, Thursday. Okay, I'm gonna take a little break and then be back with my second set. Don't forget to tip your waiter and try the special drink. It's called a nuclear threat. Rice whiskey, ginseng, and plutonium. And now, the only North Korean radio host who's not afraid to talk about how fat the Supreme Leader is getting... So, uh, my producer, Josh Nalea, wanted to do a show about North Korea. And I think the show that we decided we wanted to do would be different somehow from the way people ordinarily cover North Korea, which is in terms of facts and statistics and things about gulags and uh, and what the official state version of everything is. And there really isn't too much about sort of human contact with Korea. We decided we would go at that in several different ways. Uh, later in the show, you're going to hear the very remarkable story uh, of an American, Korean-American journalist who managed to work undercover for six months uh, in a school there, a, a evangelical Christian school, while she was writing a book about the students at the school uh, and was very terrified the entire time that she was going to be found out. Uh, but it's also possible and uh, to travel to North Korea. And uh, I happen to know Mike and, and uh, Denise Reese. Uh, they've uh, been here in the studios and they are uh, people who will travel almost anywhere. I believe they're on the list to go to Mars. Uh, and Mike Reese is a showrunner, writer, and producer for The Simpsons, as well as the author of the new Kindle book, Kindle book Tales of Moronica. Uh, and uh, Denise is uh, Mike's wife and vice president of Reese Entertainment. And they are intrepid world travelers. They go all kinds of places that people ordinarily would probably avoid. And one of them is North Korea. And I'm going to start with you, Denise. I think this was kind of your idea. At least Mike says uh, when you go wacky places, uh, it's often at your urging. It was definitely my idea, and poor Mike fought me on it. Uh, <laughs> he had some pretty funny jokes about why we shouldn't go. Um, my argument was this is the last true hard hardline communist country in the world and that didn't resonate at all with him he said so what, what does that have to do with me it was so sad that i uh, that i really wanted to take him there 
mean, you've also yeah, done, Denise, I think, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Denise has brought us to Iran and Iraq and Libya, and that was cool. And so one day, an email came in from, I think, Harvard Travel saying, we're offering tours to North Korea, and Denise was asleep, and I deleted it. I said, I don't <laughs> want her seeing this. And then they uh, it turns out Harvard had written to her also. So she woke up the next morning, saw it, and said, hey, great, we're going to do this. So you were essentially trying to uh, uh, institute against your wife the kind of control of information, the ruthless control of information that we associate with the North Korean regime. You were trying to deprive her of information she needed to make important decisions in her life? I am the supreme leader of our condo, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I mean, uh, Denise, how how difficult is it to to get to North Korea? I mean, if there's a travel agency getting in touch with you, I assume maybe not that difficult. Well, uh, actually, there are uh, at least – well, there's at least one company that is based in Beijing – uh, they don't operate out of uh, America or Europe, and I think the people who run it are are British, uh, and they uh, organize tours, uh, particularly for um, Americans around the time of the mass games, because this is the one time when Americans are allowed to go. They, the, the North Koreans want to show off their spectacular mass games, and they really are amazing. Uh, so. Uh, I was in touch with people in Beijing, and we got our visa uh, through the people in Beijing. Um, and we flew to Beijing, and then the whole tour uh, started and ended in, in Beijing. Um, so it's it's still a little bit of a hurdle. They tell me that the only countries that are not allowed ordinarily to go to North Korea uh, are America and Israel. They're very anti-Israel. So I'm 0 for 2 there. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, sh- yeah, Mike, I should mention yeah. the, the mass games were uh, – they – they are this Korean spectacle they're very proud of. And it's because as a communist country, they don't want to be competitive. They don't have an Olympics, but they still have an Olympics opening ceremony. And they stage this thing that looks like the greatest Olympic opening ceremony you've ever seen. And I've got to say, they bring us in to see this thing. This is the whole point of, of letting Americans in. And it is the most spectacular show I've ever seen in my life. It's 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 impressive, but it's also show busy. It's also very Vegas and it's very quick. It's, you're in and out in 90 minutes. It's there's got to be 50,000 people on the uh, arena floor doing choreographed moves. They switch uh they switch costumes a lot. It's like Cirque du Soleil except entertaining. <laughs> Well, yeah, I you don't have to tell me about the mass games. I look forward to them, uh, and I always come into work and say, "Did you see last night? Did you see the shot put?" And it's, nobody else is watching. Uh, very <laughs> upsetting. And of course, it's a it's a, a true communist country, so they are non competitive. They are called mass games, but it really is just a spectacular uh, dance uh, dance show, I suppose, and a lot of kids involved. So, Mike Reese, um, you're exactly probably the person that North Korea doesn't want, even as a tourist. Uh, you are um, a Jewish comedy writer for a subversive and cheeky and satirical uh, animated series. I mean, they just must be drooling to get you into their midst. Did they, did they know who you were? 
And we tried to hide all that, but they, they found out. Yeah, we, we tried to pass me off as a publicist. Uh, no, actually, it was a children's book author because they <laughs> wanted a letter from his publisher. They wanted a letter from his boss. So I thought, oh, if I write children's book author, which is true, I could get his editor to write a letter. However, uh, they they don't have uh, internet so much in North Korea, but they do have it in Beijing. So they Googled Mike, and they they were on to me that he is a writer of, of, of other things. And how big a problem was that? It wasn't. They just said, "Don't write about this," right? Well, that you was, had to sign something oh. that you wouldn't write about it. I think. Is uh, that what I signed? Oh, <laughs> I probably said I wouldn't go on NPR. Either. Right. I think. Yeah, I think you Maybe. did promise not to do interviews of this kind at all. <laughs> so, tell us, like, what happens when you get there? Like, okay, like when I'm traveling, you know, to well, maybe slightly more normal place. It's like, where are we going to eat tonight? I mean, do you get to make those kinds of decisions about where you're going to go and what you're going to do? It was, again, I, I drive Denise crazy because it's a horrible place, all right? <laughs> North Korea, a horrible, brutal dictatorship, but it's a great vic- vacation. I mean, I guess it's like Orlando that way. And it's, it's uh, they run the slickest three-day tour you've ever seen in your life. And uh, and it's funny. When I see Den- footage of Dennis Rodman going to North Korea, I see, oh, he's taking the same tour. And even when Vice went undercover, they took the same tour. And, and uh, it's a really fun package. There were 14 of us on a bus with seven minders. And we were never more than three feet away from these minders. But they take you out. You have a nice meal. Then you have a. They take it to a park, and you go to the park. They take you to visit all their monuments. And again, they have the most spectacular monuments in the tiniest area you've ever seen. It's a. It's. It's as if they took every monument in Washington D.C. and jammed them into like a ten-block radius. So there's tons of things to see my favorite thing we saw besides the mass games they took us to a circus it was an indoor circus and i i got to see a bear vacuuming and he was doing a pretty good job i I was thinking gee we need someone this good they're ahead of us there uh yeah in terms of getting bears to to do vacuuming so um i mean uh denise i mean one of the places you did go was to, to the tomb of kim il-sung tell us about that uh north korea's it supreme was, leader it was very much uh i think mike referred to orlando it was very much like a walt disney world attraction where you go through different stages and it's uh, like an adventure like a quest to get to see uh the the dear leader that ultimate moment and you we were told to bow at three points not at his feet but at both sides and at his head uh, I think we were given a flower to lay down. It was very orchestrated, uh, a, a, a huge building. They gave us uh, audio phones so we could hear the people crying when Dear Leader died. It was a very exciting experience, and you feel yourself being moved by it, uh, by all the grief, the outpouring of grief and love uh, for Dear Leader. And we're on a moving walkway, right, for yes. most of it? it's. It's a ride. It takes 45 minutes to go through the whole thing. You go room to room, and you see him, and you're excited. And then the craziest thing, I think, is the last room was like the Room of Lamentations, where the, they just go over the top telling you, hear the narrator saying, and when he died, 
tears rose to waist height in the streets and no one thought life could go on again. And you saw people around you really weeping. I mean, they're really, they buy into this or at least they think, oh, we better cry. Definitely. Very exciting place to visit. You also got to sample what at least appeared to be their mass transit system, this very beautiful and modern subway system, which, Mike, I think you you feel as though it really isn't a functional subway system like, I don't know, you know, mass transit in in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, they take you to visit the subway. Again, this is part of the tour. And I think it's modeled on the Moscow subways that Stalin built in that they are it was beautiful. It looked like the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria. And there's crystal chandeliers. There's marble on the walls and art hanging up there. And even then, I think they told you it's only three stops. But there were people in suits milling around. And one of the tourists who were, was with us just said, it's not real. It's all staged. It doesn't go anywhere. These people are extras. And I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe it was that stage managed. And then I read a book about North Korea that said, yes, this whole thing is just a big, it's elaborate. It's a piece of theater. So that's like a job. You have a job like you're one of the people who appears to be having a good time riding the subway. Uh, yeah, that'd be a pretty good job. Seems that way. I'll say. I'll say one thing. I think Mike. Part of the reason he enjoyed it so much. Uh, not only was it a very slick presentation and a very uh, fun, well thought out presentation. Uh, it was the one place where I was very well behaved. I did whatever I was told to do <laughs> because I was afraid of getting thrown out. You, uh, normally, I would take funny pictures, uh, try to do a few daring things, try to go places on my own. You can't do any of that on this trip. Uh, when you uh, go, I mean, when you're in your hotel, you're in sort of an island, and you can't really sneak out. And even if you did, you can't really meld in with the population that easily. Right. And I even wondered about how you felt about even like uh, saying something snarky or something. I mean, even the conversation that you had with the other tourist who said, oh, none of this is real. I mean, my understanding, and Suki Kim is going to say this in the next segment, is you're never not monitored. You're never not being recorded. You're never not on camera. I mean, so did you feel like you could be snarky, your snarky self? I mean, I'm not talking about doing some goofy picture or something, but just even just saying something. I, you know, they we were among our group a lot. We're sitting on the bus. I don't know if we were bugged, if if we were being watched that closely. People were fairly open, just saying what they thought. We ate again. There's one hotel where all the tourists are kept, and people were speaking pretty freely at breakfast when we were all together. But again, it is. An island. It's it's very. You were literally on an island. You'd have to swim a moat to leave the hotel. So, um, by the way, uh, Mike, this will probably not make you want to go all the way back to North Korea, but uh, just in, in, within the last few days, uh, in some of the uh, American papers, it's been reported that at the North Korean Zoo, the new exciting. Attraction is a chimpanzee who smokes cigarettes, and there are lots of pictures of the chimpanzee (laughs) 
smoking cigarettes, uh, and the chimpanzee, uh, according to the government, smokes about a pack of cigarettes a day but does not inhale. But, you know, I mean, Denise, in some ways, this country, as restrictive and bad uh, as it might have been while you were being shown uh, its kind of gleaming alternative, it's probably gone downhill since then in terms of personal freedoms and, uh, and oppressiveness. Would you have any hesitation? About, I mean, you guys don't seem to be afraid to go anywhere, but would you have any hesitation about going back again, assuming there was some reason? Like, I don't know, somebody— I would definitely go again. You I'd would. be very interested in doing that, yes. Um, I, I, um, I know a lot more, I think, about North Korea. A lot more has come out since we did this tour about 10 years ago. Um, uh, it would be— it would be fascinating for me uh, to go back knowing what I know. There's this movie out called Under the Sun, which has a lot of uh, footage of minders, minders of the people, of the citizens, being horribly abusive to people who are being filmed for a documentary, telling them, smile, be more joyous. Uh, my, my minders, it was so benign uh, they were very polite to us and probably the handsomest, nicest men in the country. Um, uh, but to see minders, how they speak to the citizens, it was absolutely shocking and it, it moved me to tears. I was watching parts of the movie last night online. Uh, I really feel now that people are under a much more um, abusive, difficult situation than than even I imagined. Um, Mike, did did any of this uh, over the last 10 years creep into your comedy, your writing for The Simpsons, anything like that? I mean, ultimately, you know, did, did you think this left a mark on you somehow? Uh, I wish I could say I used something about it. I, I can't see I've used it anywhere on The Simpsons. And then after uh, Seth Rogen made his his funny North Korean movie that mm. almost brought down Sony, I thought, gee, maybe I'll stay away from that as a topic for humor. <laughs> they so, don't have a great sense of humor. So I, I will say, yeah, I have ahead. to jump in and say one thing, because I keep talking about stage managing and show busy. There, There is that crazy element in the country among the leadership. It's uh, When I say it was stage managed, we, you, you probably know that Kim Jong-il loved movies. He had 10,000 movie mm -hmm. collection. My friend who worked on Lost said every time they finished an episode, they had to send it directly to North Korea because the the dictator loved the show so much, and I think it had a Korean actor on it. So he loved show business, and so they can mount these great spectacles. When they put their mind to it, they like that. But, I mean, that I'm not endorsing it. There's there's nothing moral or admirable about show business in any country. No. I'm was a director that was kidnapped once, so there was always the, you know, we always joked about it, or maybe it could happen that they would have kept you there and forced you to write comedy for them or <laughs> write their own Korean Simpsons or something. Um, and, you know, at my, at my age... Any work is good work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to see something up front, but other than that, yeah. you know. Um, so uh, uh, I have to ask, uh, I think I did not misspeak. I think one time you told me that you guys are on the list uh, to go to Mars. Is that still the case? We did apply to go um, uh, on Inspiration Mars. They uh, called out for a middle-aged couple with no children to take a year-and-a-half journey all alone in a capsule that would 
uh, go to Mars, fly by Mars, and come back to Earth. Sounded good to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, as, as far as I know, they just uh, they never came up with the money for uh, the trip. Who was it? Dennis Tito. Dennis Tito put up a billion and assumed everyone else would put up the other five billion, and I think he got up to like a billion and eighteen dollars, and the whole and the, the whole thing was time sensitive to when Mars was closest to the Earth. So we're still game, uh, but. Uh, I think the whole mission fell through. Well, the offers may pour in as a result of this interview. Uh, Mike Reese, showrunner, writer, producer for The Simpsons. Uh, Denise Reese, uh, Mike's wife and vice president of Reese Entertainment. Thank you for spending a little time uh, sharing your memories of, of North Korean tourism. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have a conversation with a young woman who actually went undercover in North Korea. We'll hear about what she went through and also get a sense of how limited life is for North Korean citizens. So we've talked to people who visited North Korea, but um, there is a sense, I think, that a lot of people have that just visiting North Korea doesn't tell you what you really want to know. I think that was the impression that Suki Kim had after after visiting uh, as a journalist uh, North Korea four times. Uh, She wound up doing something very different than just visiting. Uh, It led to a book, Without You, There Is No Us, Undercover Among the Sons of North Korea's Elite. That kind of tells you a little bit about what she did. She's the only writer uh, ever to have lived undercover in North Korea for an act of immersive journalism. Uh, And she's joining us right now. Um, First of all, welcome to our conversation. Hi, thank you for having me. So uh, I, I hope I said that correctly. I think you did visit four times uh, and and still felt as though you hadn't really talked to people who weren't just spouting the party line. Right. It's absolutely impossible to get an idea of what really goes on there because everything runs according to the government propaganda and you're not allowed to move freely whatsoever or talk to anybody according to what we consider as interviews when we're covering a story. Um, you should say a little bit about yourself. You're Korean-American yourself, correct? I was born and raised in South Korea um, into a family that was divided by the war. So there was more personal um, obsession with the story. Uh, members of family uh, went missing during the Korean War, which is from 1950 to 1953, it led to a division of Korea into two countries. And then I moved to America um, in my teenage years, and then um, I became a writer. First time I went to North Korea was 2002 as a writer for the celebration of the then great leader Kim Jong-il's 60th birthday celebration. I ended up living there um, undercover the year Kim Jong-il died at the age of 69. So uh, I want to talk very specifically about this project. What you did basically was apply for a chance to teach at a a school run by evangelical Christians in North Korea. And you just applied using your actual real credentials and got the job, correct? Correct. Um, My first book was a novel. So um, I didn't think 
you know, it's also possibly why they didn't really consider me that threatening. Um, I had to court uh, follow that group, an evangelical, fundamental evangelical group for a number of years. And, um, you know, I passed as one of them. Mm -hmm. So when we say undercover, I already had a book contract um, before any of this uh, for a North Korea book. So it was all for the book to tell the story from inside. And um, they, the basically, I had to pass off as a fundamental Christian myself and also a, an ESL teacher because that's what the school taught, university taught, uh, which, of course, I'm not an ESL teacher. Uh, this school was the Pyongyang University for Science and Technology. It's 270 students, all male, right? Then, yes, um, it was a year of, that was 2011, mm -hmm. which was the year 100 because they count the calendar system differently from the rest of the world according to the birth of their original great leader. So that year was year 100. They shut down every university in the whole country for a year, left only this university where they plucked all the creme de la creme of North Korea, young men aged about 20, and they put them all in this brand new school led by foreigners. Um, and of course, that year, 2011, ended up being the year that Kim Jong-il died and Kim Jong-un rose to power. Um, there's so many uh, things that I, I want to ask you about and, and about what it was like to be teaching there. Maybe we have to begin with the fact that um, essentially you were never not either monitored or under surveillance, right? There isn't sort of a moment in your day uh, where, I mean, first of all, when you're teaching, uh, when you're interacting with students, you have what are called minders present. Maybe you can tell uh, tell us about minders. Right. When you arrive in North Korea, that happens to actually everybody. Um, it was more intense uh, living there on a daily basis during um, the span of six months where uh, there's basically a group of North Korean officials whose job is to watch you 24-7. Um, in my case, they live downstairs from my my dorm. The campus was uh, military guarded. Um, you're not nobody's allowed to leave the campus, students or the teachers, um, and the minders live there twenty four seven to watch you your every move. Uh, the rooms are bugged and also um, possibly watched on whatever if there's a camera. Um, so the surveillance is absolutely complete. And that's the way actually um, every citizen in North Korea practically lives. Um, I think it's important for us to kind of maybe meet your students a little bit. Um, uh, I'm going to have you tell a story about uh, a day when they were very excited because a, a North Korean soccer team had done very well in a qualifying match uh, against a, a Japanese soccer team. Uh, tell me about that day. You know, their information is so um, censored and monitored and, and um, controlled by the government that they were really, really happy that their team had won against Japan. But that was actually a qualifying match. And um, North Korea had already uh, not qualified for the upcoming World Cup. And um, none of that was related to them. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, all that was, it was, a, it was a match they kind of had to play, even though they already disqualified. That fact was not related to them. And then 
they were, uh, and we were not as teachers allowed to tell them anything about anything. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't really correct that mistake. Um, and but one of them did. By then, you know, we had spent. Um, I had really gotten close to them as much as one possibly could in that kind of circumstances. That um, you know, one of the students did say, you know, we only see games where we win. Mm-hmm. Because um, their television only shows when they win, right? So th- you don't watch the soccer games live, uh, and you know, they have to be completed. The team, the North Korean team, has to win. Uh, so it's kind of an odd interaction with sports. I mean, some of the excitement of sports is wondering whether or not your team will win. They don't even get to do that. Um, these are, are, I mean, uh, obviously these are what nineteen and twenty year old boys. How different are they from nineteen and twenty year old boys you would meet anywhere? How, how much do their are their personalities and behaviors shaped by the kind of regime they live under? You know, I mean, that's what's really incredibly tragic about the whole circumstances, um, which is, of course, why I had to live there to get any sense of reality, because it's more complicated than do they know or do they not know. You know, in some ways, they are not that different. You know, they are fascinated by the topic of girls and sports and and laugh a lot, make lots of jokes. At the same time, they had not been taught anything ever that was not about the great leader since their birth. They've never been, you know, allowed to go anywhere on their own. North Korea, all the citizens um, can't really go anywhere out of town, between towns within the country without a travel pass, never mind leaving the country. All young men go to the army other than elite, 10 years mandatory service from the age of 17. Um, Their entire, you know, they only have one television channel. They only have um, one newspaper about the great leader, nothing else. So living in that kind of system of absolute cult ideology and the world's largest army, you know, they are different in that sense. Their existence is about the great leader, is what they've been taught. It's really like abused children. But that doesn't, you know, mean that there is no humanity that is not natural and brilliant and beautiful and, you know, just heartbreakingly lovely that just gets squashed. So it's a combination of the two. How different are they? They are different because of the system. But how different are they really? Not really, because they're also 19, 20-year-old young men. Um, you know, we, you and I are having this conversation. We're recording it the day after the third uh, presidential debate uh, here in the United States. One of the things that we've struggled with a little bit in this uh, election year is how to decide what's true and what's not true. And when somebody says something isn't true, whether or not we can cite examples of proof to to say, oh, well, the, it is. Um, and I'm certainly not comparing our present moment here in our American democracy to what you encountered in North Korea. But I think one thing that you did find was that there was really only one test of truth, really, at least at the official level, which just permeates everything in North Korean life, only one real tr- uh, test of truth, right? Whether or not the leader thinks it's true. I mean, I think that that is, you know, it's not that um, I, you know, North Korea being literally the most brutal system in the world, not, not just my opinion, that's the opinion of the UN, um, contemporary societies, there's nothing more brutal than North Korea currently. And that system is run um, really according to fear and and lies. Um, so, you know, it's actually according to the dictatorship, military dictatorship that really controls people to that degree and also wipes out any truth 
and you know it is difficult to uh, compare that to the uh, current system of what's going on here. But you know I do notice things that are um, remarkably similar in some sense. When you wipe out truth and keep saying lies are truth, at some point it's almost like a blurry the line between truth and lies. And that's what propaganda does. And also, when you do control people with fear, as if the world is going to fall apart any minute, um, if you don't listen to the great leader, I and mean, that's how North Korean system runs, because you know they are taught the whole world is about to basically attack them any second. I mean, why would a young man age seventeen go to army for ten years mandatory service? You know that doesn't honor humanity whatsoever. And that's because that whole country is run. With this fear, you know, my sister, my my um, students' classes, you know, they call them battlefield. That's what the class, the, the name for like a workplace or class. Mm-hmm. The, the vocabulary they use is a battlefield. Like this recording studio right now, NPR would be considered a battlefield. Um, and platoon leader was a class monitor, so it's really like an army about to go to war. And that fear that we're going to die tomorrow is why North Korea is the way it is. Now, one of the things that I think anybody wonders when they hear about what you are doing, uh, teaching essentially uh, uh, undercover at this evangelical university there in North Korea, um, while you're hoping to complete a book about the whole thing, is you know how how dangerous it might be for you and maybe for somebody maybe a little bit more sympathetically minded to have a conversation with you. There was one instance where uh, there was a student asking about democracy uh, and what the term national assembly meant. Uh, and afterwards, I think it was a roommate, right, who, who quietly came up to you and said something like, I'm with you. Can, can you tell us that story? Because we were only allowed, you know, my students, um, everything was watched 24-7, but I also was allowed to have meals with them. Of course, those meal conversations are also watched. And because whatever is discussed in the ESL textbook, of course, that's what we're going to talk about. And because it's because of that. It's not like they could really ask these kind of questions, but they one student asked me, what is a national assembly? Which is a really difficult thing to answer without discussing democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think that my answer, as much as I tried to be as careful as possible, I was just struck with fear afterward. Did I get him in trouble? Did I, you know, is he trying to trap me? Because they do report on you. Um, later on, he's, he's, a student came up to me saying he's a friend of his, um, that other student and said, you know, he's with you. And that one phrase, meaning he thinks like me. So what does that mean? The student thinks like me about democracy. Is this student going to then get in trouble? And, and what is going to happen? And that fear of the consequences of thinking anything you might think or the fact that I could get someone in trouble and that trouble is not a light punishment in that country. And I think that kind of fear basically kills humanity. And that's how that system in a very minor way works for the entire nation. I mean, when I was there, you know, writing the book, I, I had to keep it all on USB sticks, erase every single thing from the computer, wipe it out every single time every day and keep the USB sticks on my body at all times. And that was the only you can record anything and possibly sneak it out of there. Um, 
this is in ways that I think it's hard for an American to fathom, uh, but in all the ways that you're saying, a, a very closed-off system where uh, a student's ability or, or any person's ability to search out any kind of alternative narrative doesn't really exist. And and you even wound up explaining to them that because there was kind of an opening, a permitted opening, uh, because of, I think, the textbook and the lesson plan, you, you were able to tell them about uh, television in, in other countries where there's not just one channel. What did you tell them and how did that go over? You know, even everything is just like a walking on eggshell because people are watching and things like, and I don't want to get in, get them into questioning the system. It's always a dilemma. What what am I doing with these students? Um, am I causing, you know, misery or danger in their lives? One of the themes was on television, um, just an innocent ESL topic and, um, you know, then they could actually ask how many channels do you have? And it was a complicated question because they only have one channel, um, officially three, but really only one works, which is from like 9.30 to 11.30. And every single program is about the great leader. And this is all they've ever been allowed to watch. To them, I say American television has hundreds of channels. Doesn't make any sense. But I realized there was no way we could discuss this topic. So the only thing I could do was repeat. I would say we have a choice of um, many channels. And I repeated that word choice over and over and over, hoping maybe, would, maybe they would get the message. What I'm trying to say in a subtle way, meaning we have a choice of many channels, more than one, and you don't have a choice. But even that, relating that, hoping they would get this message, was a really also soul-searching moment because I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing by opening them to a new way because what would that mean for these particular students? Because, you know, it's all good for us to sit in New York and think, okay, so, um, you know, rise up against your government, dictator regime, but in reality, their realities are their lives are in danger and their families' lives are in danger because that's also how that system works. And it's like Stalin's system or something where, you know, if you are disloyal to your government, then basically everybody in your life also dies or ends up in a gulag. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more of Suki Kim's story. Without you, there is no us. Undercover among the sons of North Korea's elite. They tried before, but the great leader was unpleasant. And I spent Christmas in North Korea. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and May Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Dennis Rodman. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to us on the iTunes podcast feed, and all of our episodes go up on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On tomorrow's show, what we can learn from burglars. And now, back to Colin. 
Uh, we're talking to Suki Kim, a uh, Korean-American writer and author of Without You, There Is No Us, Undercover Among the Sons of North Korea's Elite. So this is 2011. Uh, a lot of things are happening. Something very big is going to happen in North Korea during that year. But another thing that's happening is the Arab Spring. Did your students know about the Arab Spring, about the uprisings Absolutely. in these countries? Absolutely nothing. I mean, they were, um, you know, this is, I mean, it's actually remarkable that year that they basically say to celebrate 100 year, we're all going to be in a construction field and shut down every university. That's really a way to scatter youth. Of course, in the rest of the world, youth are rising against um, rotten regimes. So then they basically shelter the sons of elite because that's who they are. Everybody else is doing manual labor except 270 of them. Clearly, these people are being sort of in a safe house. And then that year, you know, the regime changed. By the end of that year, Kim Jong-il died. So it appears now, obviously, meticulously planned way for the regime change to take place and for Kim Jong-un, the youngest leader, to rise to power, you know, and probably in just the fear was that there would be any military coup because Kim Jong-un, of course, remember, is not the first son. He's a third son. So there were factions, which one was going to inherit the nation. So, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a remarkable time. And I think that to understand North Korea, which really is important to understand because currently it's a really a serious nuclear threat, is to understand how that future leadership actually thinks which is what I was there for. I wasn't there to collect the Wikipedia information and statistics of gulags and stuff, which, the, you know, the organizations would do that. Their psychology as well as what happened that year. Hmm. I mean, it's, I think it's important. So you're in this university. It's the only higher education institution that has remained open during this unusual year where everybody else is kind of scattered uh, around. And then the great leader's death does happen. So uh, how do the students react when they get that news? Oh, um, before I get to that, which okay. is really crucial, um, also, I think it's important to uh, note that this was a school of science and technology. Mm-hmm. They were computer majors, and they didn't know the internet existed. Mm-hmm. This is how sheltered they were. They all claimed that they knew, but once you really get to know them and talk to them, they had no idea. They would ask me questions like, how many movies can you watch on the internet, while claiming they knew what the internet was. Mm-hmm. Um which, of course, they only get intranet, which is censored. This is how shelter, as much as we would love to think, the elites. I've interviewed a lot of defectors who come from bottom rung through about 10-year research on North Korea. Um, we assume elites have it better. But, you know, the reality I found was how incredibly um, controlled they were and f- fearful in fear of that lives their lives were. Um, and as much as, you know, be these 20-year-olds who are the creme de la creme, um, they had nothing but the great leader in many aspects. And when the great leader died, Kim Jong-il died, you know, the devastation I saw were so deep. You know, it was far more than what the world saw, which is, you know, people just wailing in front of AP or whatever, um, Reuters camera, whatever it is that, that, that foreign cameras captured. I mean, I think the sorrow that I saw was just just as if their souls had been sucked out of them. And in many ways, it wasn't surprising. You know, it's it's their father, their meaning of existence. Great leader is not just a president. 
He's really like a god figure as well as a father figure in a Confucian society, which is what Korea is really traditionally. So there is sort of this odd sense that it's a cult, but it's a god, it's a parent, leader. So in this combination figure that controls your being and he's suddenly gone, I mean, they were absolutely devastated. And I think that is also what was really troubling because how do they recover from that? And, and you know, the, the question of what happens to North Korea and South Korea when you look at their psychology, it's a complicated one because it's not just some random political dictatorship. It's more than that. Um, you know, as you've been talking to me, when you first got here, we were just talking a little bit, and you were, I had you tell me about your breakfast just to set some mic levels. Your voice has changed so much while you've been talking. There's so much passion in your voice right now. There's kind of fire in your voice. Can you tell me what that emotion is? I mean, when you talk about this, your your voice is infused with a kind of energy. Is it outrage on behalf of these young men, or or, or what, what are you feeling when you talk about this? I find it really devastating. This is why people always ask me, why did I go there and risk my life to do this reporting? I couldn't believe when I first went there in 2002, and I feel that more and more and more I got to know about North Korea, I thought what I saw there and understood there to be is the beyond my worst nightmare. North Korea has been in existence for 70 years. Millions of people got separated. And 70 years means generations of people. And this is what's going on in that part of the world. There's 25 million people and trapped in that system where they're not even allowed to even know about the Internet in this time. Um, their movements are all restricted. They're not allowed to, th- I mean, know about anything at all because they're not given any of the information. I just don't imagine anything worse than that. And I think more than that, what I cannot really understand is the wide world is sitting back and watching it. I know we're powerless to this kind of cruelty and violations of humanity, but the level we are experiencing over there is not like anything we've ever seen before. It's not Cuba. It's not East Germany. It's not China. You know, this is just um, unacceptable. And I do feel like we're all complicit in that, that this is just continuing and continuing. And I don't see any end in sight. What happened when the book came out, when uh, Without You, There Is No Us, Undercover Among the Sons of North Korea's Elite? When that came out, did the North Korean government shoot you a dirty look? Did did it acknowledge there was such a book? Did you get uh, any kind of feedback from them? I got a lot of threats to stop the publication when the school found out. School really works. The university works in collaboration with the regime. They poured in $35 million to build that school, far more to operate, and God knows how much money under the table went to the regime because there's no way you can operate such a thing in North Korea without actually handing over money. So they were furious and kept threatening me. But, you know, by that point, the book had come out and I kept getting harassed. But then, I mean, it was a bit too late. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's not a book that, you know, they would have – the, obviously, North Korea was furious about, and so was the school, the university, which is a fundamental evangelical organization. Um, but th- that harassment was expected, and I felt that um, being there was far more scary. 
Um, how scared were you? I mean, I, I'm trying to picture myself in your shoes, and, and I'm thinking I almost would have my breath sucked in for six months, that there'd be a part of me that could never entirely uncoil or relax. I would be so worried about being detected, uh, about what could happen to me. I mean, was that just true for you 24-7 for six months, or did you could you uncoil enough to be your real self? No, never. It was never. It was. It was. I was petrified twenty four seven because I didn't stumble upon this. You know, by that point, I had been you know researching this topic for so long, so I knew what what I was walking into, and knowing it as well as I did, um, I knew that it would be you know nearly impossible to get out with this. This you know, I, I walked out of there with four hundred page notes, and and the minders watching me twenty four seven. I was petrified all the time. And what I didn't count on, though, all that time was how much I would actually really learn to love those students. And the more and more, um, because because it was like a prison to be stuck in there with them, and they weren't allowed to leave either. And and spending that much time with, I mean, I never spent that much time 24-7 with people. It was such an intimate students I was in charge of. Um I, I think that loving them so much as if they were my children, and they seem much younger, although they were 20. You know, when you are really abused, infantilized, you are much younger. I felt like they could be 8 or 12. Mm. And I think my heart broke for them, and it became a more difficult emotionally, I think. It was scary, but it was also heartbreaking on a daily basis because they were like my children, and this is the world they're going to be stuck in forever and ever and ever. And that thought, I mean, it still haunts me. Suki Kim, thank you so much for talking to me. This is an amazing story. It's called Without You, There Is No Us, Undercover Among the Sons of North Korea's Elite. Thank you so much for being part of this show. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks especially to Josh Nalea, who conceived this show. We wanted to do a show about North Korea that wasn't about their nuclear arsenal. I think we succeeded. We'll be back tomorrow with something, as we like to say, completely different. And give them guns on a Thursday. Why he was rich on a Friday. A president on Saturday. He went to war on a Sunday. July.